Father, help us to approach you with deepest reverence. You are beyond the grasp of our comprehension, but not beyond the grasp of our love. Warm us this day with the gospel. Our love is often frost and cold, ice and snow. We need gospel heat. Jesus, you are brighter than a thousand suns. Shine upon our frigid souls. We came not to make our heads fat, but our hearts full. In this next hour, help us to rejoice in knowing that we are under the care of one who is too wise to err. Holy Spirit, in creation, you hovered over chaos and order came to birth. Beauty robed the world and fruitfulness came forth. Move, we beg thee, upon our disordered hearts. May we see our sins as the nails that transfixed Jesus, the cords that bound him, the thorns that tore him, the sword that pierced him. Father, you've given us your word that we might be students of it. That we might learn from it. So help this text to hit our heads, our hearts, and our hands. May it hit our heads that we might worship you with our minds. May it hit our hearts that we might be moved emotionally. Don't let us be emotionless after being in this text. Come hard after our affections. Put us in awe. May it hit our hands that we put into practice what you've commanded of us. That we are ready to act as a result of being exposed to this passage. We have no interest in just hitting the head. It must also hit the heart. For theology leads to doxology. What we know to be true of you leads to our worship of you. Father, we also have no interest in just hitting the head but not touching the hands. Because belief affects behavior. So help our behavior to be modified by this exposition. We have been granted a great privilege to open your word in a public place. May we be mindful of our brothers and sisters around the world who do not have this privilege. They meet in some dark corner, but meet they must because this is the day your people gather. This is the day your people worship. This is the day your people need to be exposed to your preached word. Help me to deal faithfully with the text. To always say what the text says. To never neglect the hard truths in the text. To teach my people to love your word. Honor your word. And crave your word. Do this among us. For the praise of your glory. Amen. He walks right out of the woods and gets in the face of the king. How did a man living off the grid get in the royal palace? He's wearing animal skin. He didn't buy it. He killed it. Then ate it. Then wore it. Lions are afraid of this man. Soon, Kings will be too. He barges into our story unannounced. His name, Elijah. He's a Tishbite from Tishbe. That's where you would expect a Tishbite to originate. Tishbe. Let me show you Tishbe on the map. Actually, I can't do that because Tishbe wasn't put on the maps. That's how unsettled it was. That's how small it was. That's how out in the boonies it was. 
They didn't map Tishbe. But Elijah is about to put himself on the map. Verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. This unpopular prophet from this unpopulated place storms unannounced into the king's court. He wears a, a leather belt and he has leather lungs. He tanned skin to make the leather belt. With those leather lungs, he's about to tan the king. He's God's country mouthpiece. God's voice with a southern drawl. The leather-lunged prophet comes from total obscurity and with total confidence walks up to the king of all the land and says, as sure as the God I work for is alive and well, there will be no rain for years. Not even dew. Not pasture dew. Not plant dew. Not valley dew. Not even mountain dew. I'm taking dew off the shelves. Now, he's not a weatherman. He didn't get this info by reading the forecast. He received this from God himself. God determined to withhold both dew and rain from this polluted land. It's a death sentence for Israel. They depend on seasonal rains for the success of their crops. Anyone without a serious trust fund is about to be in trouble. The king, the king was a bell-kissing apostate. He couldn't keep his lips off of his wife, and she couldn't keep her lips off of Baal. These two serpents coiled on their throne. Ahab and Jezebel, the Lord and Lady of Darkness. He's the head of the nation. But she's the neck that turns the head. She loved Bill. She's a zealous evangelist for Bill, the God of her homeland. When Ahab and Jezebel got married, she said, What about we make Bill the national God of Israel? He responded, Yes, boss lady. These two vile toads repaganized the land of Israel. They made Baalism a completely state-sponsored religion. They enforced a militant promotion of Baal. Israel is finally starting to feel like home to her. Baal was the god of rain. He specialized in making it rain. He's the rain god. If you wanted it to rain, you prayed to Baal. Hey, Baal, it's been dry. I give you this offering, I make it, will you make it rain? He was responsible for the rainfall. He was the Canaanite storm god. Texts even outside of scripture, dating back to this time, show Baal sitting on the clouds, riding them. So what is God doing by making Elijah deliver this message to the king? <laughs> God is picking a fight with Baal. He's saying, I control fertility. I control the rain. I pour out the dew. Baal was known as the rider on the clouds, but Psalm 104 reveals to us, Yahweh rides the clouds. He makes the clouds his chariot. Baal is not the rider of the clouds. God is the rider of the clouds. Baal's reputation is about to suffer a shattering blow. Can you make it rain? He can't. Your God is too small. He's way down here. God's people were to trust him alone for rain. God warned Israel through Moses that the punishment for idolatry would be drought. Deuteronomy 11, verse 16 and 17. God said, I will shut up the heavens 
Even Solomon knew this day would come. He knew the tendency in the people to revert back to idolatry. So he prayed 70 years before this in 1 Kings 8.35 at the dedication of the temple. He said, when heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you. There was a spiritual drought in the land. No word from the Lord. Silent years. Here, the spiritual drought ends, but the physical drought commences. Elijah comes on the scene during national apostasy. The absence of Yahweh's word is now replaced with the absence of Yahweh's reign. This will be, a, this will be devastating for the land and for all those who live off it, which is everyone in an agrarian culture. It didn't rain for years. Every day telling the same story. The heavens declare the anger of God. And the firmament proclaims the heat of his wrath. See, what Ahab and the queen missed is that the one who first made it rain is the one who rules the rain. Ask Noah. Who can make it rain? Verse 2. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself in the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. In other words, get out of here fast. These serpents will strike. They will slither after you. You must hide from the wrath of Ahab. God sends Elijah east to the desert, to an inhospitable area. Here is his wilderness wandering. He's in the center of God's will, and it led him to a wilderness. But this wilderness will become a wilderness of God's mercy. Elijah enters God's witness protection program. The snake couldn't find him. Verse 4. You shall drink from the brook. And I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. We, we don't see Elijah lingering. We don't see Elijah questioning. I read so many commentaries in the last two weeks. Where they surmised as if Elijah didn't want to accept this mission. There's a little static in the frequency Lord. Are you sure you want me to go there? I don't see any of that. Elijah accepted this mission fearlessly and confidently. No hesitation. I'm not saying it wasn't humbling. He goes from the heights of it will not rain except by my word to the depths of go hide yourself. Verse 5. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kareth. Spelled Cherith, pronounced Kareth. Lived by the brook Kareth that is east of the Jordan. He was there for months. No books to read, no games to play, no person to talk to. I'm not sure how he felt at Kareth. Maybe he felt forgotten, insignificant, like life had passed him by. Maybe he was a loner and, and this was quite enjoyable to him. Just him and his long beard. The point of the passage is not how Elijah felt at Kareth. The number of pastors I have heard talk about how sad Elijah was at Kareth and how this relates to our Kareth times is just crazy. That is not the author's intent. That's not even a minor point of the passage. Pastors are so stinking therapeutic today. We need God-centered preaching because this text is God-centered. What is the first question we ask when we study an Old Testament narrative? What does this text reveal about God? Five ways to live in your careth. Let me puke in my mouth. We know this guy was a loner. We find out later he kind of took pride in being alone. 
I think Kareth to him was like a vacation to some of you. He's a mountain man. He only went to the city because God made him. Now that's a bit of a rant. Back to the text. Verse 6. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning. And bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. Imagine the first dinner bell that rang. Then suddenly Elijah sees a flock of birds winging their way across the sky. Did, did the ravens wear little aprons as they brought the food to Elijah? Was he fed like they feed their young? They just dropped the bread in his mouth? He tried to catch it like my kids do when I throw them grapes? God commands animals. He has this power. They listen to their creator. God is piloting these ravens. The ravens never croaked out a single objection. They obeyed their master. This isn't the first time God's controlled his animal kingdom. He made a lion snuggle up to Daniel. He made a giant fish swallow Jonah. He made a worm eat Jonah's leafy shelter. He made locusts invade Egypt and flies and lice to do the same. He commanded a lion and a donkey to wait by a dead body. This little raven catering service was no challenge for Yahweh. The ravens picked up the food and dropped it off. This is God's Uber Eats. Beloved, remember... Our God is the God of the raven. He delights in providing for us in ways we never expected. Behind the ravens are his hands. Let us consider the choice of the bird. A raven. It's an unclean animal. It's an odd way for God to provide. Using a detestable bird. Unclean, meaning you can't eat those birds. But you can eat what those birds deliver. I would have chosen an eagle. That's a majestic bird. It's beautiful. It kills live prey. Ravens eat roadkill. They are filthy birds. Dirty birds. In extra biblical sources, not meaning extra inspired, meaning outside of the Bible, in extra-biblical sources, ravens are depicted as scavengers in Assyrian battle scenes. Eagles are happy birds. Ravens are angry birds. God uses the ugliest of all birds to feed Elijah. But wait, don't forget, the ugliest of all birds is also fed by God. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you of not more value than they? Let these ravens rebuke you as they feed Elijah. Did the ravens kill the animal and then just drop it back at Elijah's feet? And how did the ravens get the bread? Who left their kitchen window open? Who's been baking bread every day so the ravens could take it from their windowsill? Elijah shouting to the ravens, where, where did you get this bagel? I love bagels. They brought each sort of food twice a day, both meat and bread, both in the morning and the evening. Every morning and every evening, Elijah received his food from the beaks of birds. Have you ever noticed whenever God hand selects the menu in the Bible, it always includes meat? God didn't bring Elijah a kale salad. I see no vegetables on the menu. Now you tell me, church, what is the principle here? <laughs> Eat meat for breakfast and grow to be an Elijah. Meat and bread. This is a sub sandwich. 
This is almost a replay of the wilderness meal plan when Israel wandered in the wilderness while leaving Egypt. Elijah drank from the brook. He probably built a makeshift hut, carved out some crude furniture. He came from the outdoors, so he's in his element. He's there for months, some scholars say up to a year. Eventually, Elijah notices the trees and shrubs slowly began to wilt and die off. The dust storms began to become more frequent. The land groans for water. The water flow in the brook begins to slow. He sees more of the banks than he's ever seen before. He begins to take mathematical measurements. If it dropped this much in seven days, it's going to drop that much again in the next seven days. He could see the watermark on the banks of the wadi. He knew it was going dry before it went dry. Eventually it narrows to a trickle and then the trickle down to nothing. There are fish flopping around in the muddied bottom. The ground where the brook used to flow soon bakes under the sun. It turns hard. It cracks like everything else around him. Verse 7. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Hmm. Hey, Elijah, mountain man, dude with a strong beard game, what do you do when wherever God has called you dries up? Because of our proneness to look at the raven and forget the hand behind it, God frequently has to change his means of supply to keep our eyes fixed on the source. Elijah learned to put his trust not in the outward circumstances of his provision, but in the God who provides. To me, this seems like a perfect time to pray for rain. But remember, the drying of the brook was in itself an answer to prayer. Things are happening just like Elijah said they would. The covenant curse is being felt across the land. The second time the word of the Lord came to Elijah, verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to feed you. God doesn't need a riverbed. He could have provided water from a rock like he did with Israel in the wilderness. When God puts Elijah on the move, he is showing that he's on the move. Why move Elijah when it's not necessary for his survival? God is up to something. He desires to take new ground, redeem new people. This is less about Elijah's movement and more about God's movement. Notice that only when the brook was completely dried up did the word of the Lord come. And I don't think Elijah was on pins and needles. God told him, I will sustain you. So when the brook began to dry, he didn't fret because he had the word of God. Elijah is told to travel over 90 miles to Sidon. Wait, Sidon? That's Jezebel's hometown. That's her stomping grounds. She was the head cheerleader for the local football team. You want me to go there, Lord? That's the heartland of Baal. Scholars tell us Zarephath was the primary producer of the molten images of Baal. What Detroit is to the automobile, Zarephath was to Baalism. What, what Kentucky is to bourbon, Zarephath was to Baal. We know by now that Ahab and Jezebel, those vile toads, have put out a hit on Elijah. He's a wanted man. There's a bounty on his fat head. Now we know all of this from the next chapter. God is sending Elijah into Jezebel's land. 
a Baal-saturated city. He's going into the snake's den. I wonder if the old prophet, as he made his way there, quoted Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table for me in the presence of my enemies. This is the last place Elijah would have chosen, but it's the first place that God chose for him. Again, without hesitation, without argumentation, he obeys. Dale Ralph Davis says, Faith is wagering everything upon the veracity of God's word. I push all my chips to the center of the table. I wager everything on God's word. What's ahead in our story? Unexpected mercies from unexpected places. Verse 10. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. Elijah rolls up to Zarephath with nappy hair, a long, ungreared, boomed uh, uh, beard, uh, chapped lips, cracked skin, and, and wild eyes. This is a homeless man. He's wearing animals. Yes, this is lion. The sleeves are black bear. Oh, what's that thick fur on your neck? Well, that's just my back hair. He's a mountain man. He sees a widow woman gathering firewood. How did he know she was a widow woman? I guess she was still in her mourning garb. I think the husband just recently died. Her child was still very young. Her husband's death was unexpected and caused her to become a mere beggar. She's a panhandler. This woman is desperate and vulnerable. She's at the city gates. What do we know about the city gates in antiquity? This is where the elders met. The elders of the city. And no one is talking to this widow woman or this wild man. God commanded ravens to feed the prophet. Now he commands a widow woman. Two scavengers. Scavenger birds and a scavenger widow. Elijah says to the woman, bring me some water. And she's over here thinking, my husband died, and I still have men bossing me around. You're supposed to care for widows, not boss them around. Now this sounds very callous to us, very demanding, even sexist. What a heartless request. And we're giving Elijah this face. What is wrong with you? Get some manners and brush your nasty teeth. The prophet is ignoring her felt needs. They were legitimate felt needs. But they were something more important than her felt need. She's a Gentile widow. Not a follower of Yahweh. She's a Baal worshiper like all the other townspeople. She recently started to question that religion, however, because Baal makes it rain, but he hasn't been making it rain lately. When it doesn't rain, the crops don't grow. When crops don't grow, people don't eat. When people don't eat, the first people with an empty plate are the widows. Widows were dependent on the mercy of their neighbors. They were given the leftovers, the scraps off the table. But there are no scraps now. The drought has reduced all the resources. And everyone must look out for their own. Now, if Baal were real, and he's not... By the way, it's pronounced Baal. We say Baal, but it's Baal. There's a, there's a diphthong, two vowels in a single syllable. But I'm going to say Baal because that's how we pronounce it in the States. And he doesn't care if I mispronounce his name because he doesn't exist. If Baal walked through Zarephath, 
widows would have been the first to throw rocks at him. Baal is not keeping his side of the bargain. Everyone is praying to him to bring rain, but he can't make it rain. The first question this widow is going to want answered from Elijah is, does your God rule the rain? Verse 11. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. Now this is interesting. She's about to oblige the prophet some water when he asked for a morsel of bread. First he wanted water, then he wanted bread. Where is this going to stop? The text says God instructed the widow to feed him. But it seems like the widow knew nothing about it. Maybe something got crossed in the lines of communication. She knows nothing of her responsibility to feed this fellow. Look at verse 12. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked. Only a handful of flour and a jar, and a little oil and a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son. That we may eat it and die. Here's a destitute widow and her malnourished son. She's been rationing her meals. She's down to her last plate. And Elijah, Elijah, have some perception here. She can't even make a muffin, much less a loaf of bread. This is going to be our last meal. You caught me in the middle of scraping up just enough to eat and die. My boy is going to die in my arms. My, my weak, limp arms. This is her last supper. We have a young child without food, a recent widow without food, and a prophet without food. But we have a God who is on the move. Verse 13. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. Now, I think I would have been like, no, no, I'm going to eat first. And then I'll give you something. But it all changes when she hears this command is from Yahweh. She needs encouragement to take that step of faith. And Elijah gives it to her. Do not fear. That's how you help people take a step of faith. You must put down their fears. The words, do not fear in the Bible, are always followed by a plea to trust God. Feeding Elijah before her son is not logical. It doesn't make sense. But faith is never logical. You can't see it. And she says, I, I, I don't have a husband to help me make this decision. You don't need a husband to help you make this decision. You have the word of the Lord. Give God everything you have, for he will give you everything you need. She's debating in her mind. I need to conserve. I need to protect. The economy is bad. There's a recession. Beloved, your provision has never come from what you can save. The prophet says, even though there is a famine everywhere else, there is going to be a feast in your house. Trust God. Verse 14, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent. And the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. This is a promise of provision. I will feed you. Words of assurance to an unassured soul. God provides food without rainfall. The latter does not limit the former. Can you see this woman? 
with, with her starving son on her hip, she hears these words. You and the boy are going to make it. You're going to make it until the drought is over. Verse 15. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent. Neither did the jug of oil become empty. According to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. The jar and the jug show that God is faithful. Every morning she went to the pantry and there was enough. That is grace. Morning by morning new mercies she sees. A feast for you when there is a famine for everyone else. Verse 17. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. Now, what a crazy turn of events. I feel like the story should have ended in verse 16. What just happened? We don't know. The young boy became sick. It all happened so quickly. Now he's dead. He was her reason for getting up in the morning. Her only hope for the future is suddenly, without warning, dead. Verse 18. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. She's sobbing. Angry crying, exploding at the prophet. Why did you ever come here in the first place, O man of God? Barging in, exposing my sin and killing my son. There's a causative tone to her lament. She first blames him, then blames herself. Were you sent to punish me? She apparently believes that God killed her son because of her sin. Is this punishment for my sin? I sin and my son dies? Did my son die because of my sin? Now Elijah could have responded, now hold on. Don't be blaming me. I fed you and the child for the last three years. Every widow in town is dead, but you are still alive. Some of the common folk in town are starting to die of starvation, but you are still alive. How about you change your tone when you come at me? Now that's how I would have responded. But I'm not Elijah. And you say, Kyle, but you're just as rugged as Elijah. I'm aware. But I don't often respond like Elijah. Elijah shows such grace in this situation. Such a model for us. He realizes the emotion, emotional tension. Verse 19. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid on him and laid him on his bed. It, church, it must have been a small child. She is holding the child while yelling at the prophet. Elijah took the young boy from her arms. Now, a holy man wasn't supposed to touch a dead corpse. So this event made him ritually unclean. Apparently, the prophet stayed in a room, a temporary shelter on the flat roof of her home. These were common in the Near East. He was there two to three years. Verse 20, and he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Elijah seems to conclude that the death of the son seemed to contradict Yahweh's intended plan. 
He prays in desperation. He lays out his anxieties before God. Beloved, if your anxieties haven't driven you to your face on the floor, they aren't near as bad as you think they are. The drought had not ended. And the prophet promised the mill would sustain them. They would live until the drought ended. The child can't die before the drought ends. Verse 21. Then Elijah stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. Verses 20 and 21. This is a double reference to Elijah crying out to the Lord. Elijah laid himself out over the boy. Now we're not given explanation for this. I think it was symbolic. He lays on top of him as if absorbing death into his body. Acting out. Let this lifeless body be as my living body. Transferring life from him to the dead one. Put, put breath back into the, the boy's body. God transfer my life to the boy. I think it's symbolic. Verse 22. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again. And he revived. Did you notice that God doesn't answer Elijah's question? But he does answer Elijah's prayer. This is the first resurrection in the Old Testament. The son was dead, but he is alive again. He was cold to the touch, but then God touched him. Moses never raised the dead. Noah never raised the dead. Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob never raised the dead. Not until this moment in the Bible is someone raised from the dead. Verse 23. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. Elijah descends the stairs holding the boy, then delivers the boy back into the arms of his mother. Here's your son alive. All her fears and doubts were dissipated. Now it's one thing to rescue someone from the jaws of death. But what about when death has chewed them and swallowed them? See, Baal couldn't do anything with death. Yahweh says, I can. Does your God rule the rain? Oh, not only the rain, he rules death. Verse 24. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. In other words, I see it now. When you speak, God speaks. The event confirms Elijah is a reliable spokesperson for God's word. At last, the woman is converted to Yahweh. She needed a resurrection to believe, but she believed. This is her Old Testament public profession of faith. I didn't want to break up the narrative with points or an outline. The story needed to be told in an uninterrupted fashion. The exegesis is finished. The application is not. I will give you seven applications to bring this text to your front porch. To bring it home. We have a redemptive application. A gospel application. A missions application. An election application. The economy tanks and my pantry is empty application. A heretical application. And a Christ application. I hope you can repeat those. There's a test as you leave today. All right, let's get after it and may these applications get after us. First, a redemptive application. A redemptive application. Will God make it rain? Well, we shall find out next week. We leave our story with the boy now living but many others dying. There's a feast in the widow's house but a famine in all the other houses. Will God make it rain? We will wait and see. But until then, let's talk about a theology of rain. The first time God sent rain, it was in judgment. Noah and the ark. The rain represented the judgment of God on mankind. 
God gave his people a way to escape his judgment. Get on the ark. After the first rain, the land needed the rain. Rain became a necessity. Rain became a blessing. It was no longer sent in judgment. It was sent in love. The rainbow was the promise that God would no longer send rain in judgment. The purpose of rain completely flipped. Now, now when God wanted to bring judgment on his people, he withheld the rain. There was only one exception to this. Only one. On the cross, when Jesus hung there, did you know it was raining? Yes, it, it was pouring. It rained God's wrath. It was pouring his indignation. This is how I know that the wrathful God in our passage will never pour out that wrath on me because he poured it out on his son. The wrath I deserved was poured out on Christ. If you were without Christ, if you were here and without Christ, you shall have God's judgment fall on you in eternity. He will rain hell on you. You, like the people in our passage, have failed to keep God's word. But he's provided a way of escape. A way to escape the judgment. He provided a better ark. You must faith this Christ. Push all your chips to the center of the table. Wager everything on his claims. The people in our passage refuse to repent of their sin. Will you? A gospel application. First, a redemptive application, now a gospel application. The widow, you may remember back in verse 18, apparently believed that God killed her son because of her sin. That's not the gospel. Is this punishment for my sin? I sin and my son dies? Did my son die for my sins? God responds, no, dear widow, my son died for your sins. Your son is not, your son cannot die to pay for your sins. Only my son can do that. In our text, God did raise her son. But her son's resurrection didn't guarantee any salvation. In fact, he died again later as an adult. No, it wasn't until God raised his son after three days that death was defeated and sin's effects destroyed. God's power to raise the dead was demonstrated once and for all in the empty tomb. There is no other son who has gone to the grave and conquered it. He holds the keys of death, hell, and the grave. And this son isn't giving them back. A missions application. A redemptive application, a gospel application, a missions application. Let me do this. How many of you have ever heard this text preached before? Chapter 17. Would you raise your hand if you've heard this text preached before? All right, that's quite a few of you. Mostly pastors, they ignore the whole book, but they dip into chapter 17 and 18. Did you know that Jesus preached this Elijah text? He preached it to his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. Luke 4 records it. Now, I, I want you to hear how he preached it. I, I'll read it. Jesus said, I tell you, in front of the synagogue, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came all over the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And the narrator tells us when they, that's the people listening to Jesus' sermons, heard those things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove Jesus out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down from the cliff. But passing through the midst, Jesus went away. 
Why did this Old Testament sermon draw the hometown people into rage? Because it is saying God bypassed many Israelite widows to save a Gentile widow. It reveals the heart of God for the nations. Salvation sent to the Gentiles. He's a global God, not a mere village God. The gospel is for people of all nations. Jesus used this text as a missions conference text. Jesus points to the missionary heart of God, and that is when they tried to kill him. He only escaped miraculously. He was the object of a lynch law. They were going to throw him off the cliff. Religious people have trouble understanding this story. Because it tells the story of God's grace to outsiders. The Jews didn't like it. They were ethnocentric. They believed their ethnic group was privileged. This flew into the face of their racism. Jesus said, the kingdom I am bringing is ethnically diverse. He was saying that God considers the Gentile and the Jew to be on equal ground. To get into the kingdom, they both come the same way. Not by genealogy, but by grace. Jesus said, I'm, le I'm leaving Nazareth to reach outsiders. That's what he said after the sermon. He, in effect, is saying, you Nazarenes are worse than the Gentiles. I, I want you to feel the sting of this. This is like saying to a soldier in the U.S. Army, you and the Islamic radicals who murder and torture innocent women and children are going to the same hell if you don't repent. In this day, there was a phrase that was just filled with hatred. It went like this. God created the Gentiles to fuel the fires of hell. The Jews believed this. These people didn't want grace. They wanted works. They wanted the salvation that depended on them, not the work of another. This story was a reproach to Israel. It's salvation to us. Because we are Gentiles. This story should send us out to the four corners of the world. To the four corners of the world. Bringing the gospel to lost widows and lost nations. This passage sent Jesus out. May it do the same to us. An election application. An election application. Now here's an election I enjoy talking about. Verse 8 of our text. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. <laughs> the Lord has chosen this woman before she was ever aware. This is always God's way. He chooses those long before they are aware of it. He knew this widow before the widow knew him. This is divine election. God had one in Zarephath who was his. And he was going after her. He was on the move. She thought, after her son resurrected from the dead, she thought, well, I chose Yahweh. And she did. But long before that, he singled her out. She may have been an unnamed widow, but her name was written in the book of life. Number next one, I don't even know what application we're on now. The, the economy tanks and my pantry is empty application. The economy tanks and the pantry is empty application. Elijah, he didn't get chubby in that valley outside of Jerusalem. His pockets weren't getting full. His prophetic portfolio wasn't improving. But his faith was growing. He was becoming more and more dependent on God. We are to pray each day. Give us this day our daily bread. Daily bread demanding daily faith. But this is what we do. 
We, we look up to the sky and wonder if the ravens are coming tomorrow. Rest in God's promises. He promised to feed the birds, and now he promises to feed Elijah with the birds. This lesson is essential because there will be days when divine provisions appear to cease. The brook stops flowing. Trust the jug and the jar won't run out. They may never be overflowing, but always enough. You need to learn to pray. You need to learn to pray, Father, just as the meal from the ravens came from your hands, help me to realize the meal I will eat at lunch also came from your hands. God may not truck in widows and ravens, but he trucks in other agents. A person who hires you. A family member who gives you what you need. A church who helps. God may not supply it in a miraculous way, but he supplies. Trust not in a brook or a bird, but in the God of brooks and birds. God, you will be our raven, both now and forever. Beloved, I'm not telling you what I've read. I'm telling you what I've lived. One of the marks of spiritual maturity is the quiet confidence that you possess that God will come through for you. One of the marks of spiritual maturity is the quiet confidence you possess that God will come through for you. But tomorrow, daily bread, daily prayers. This widow was worried about the, this meal being her last supper. If you are worried about your next meal being your last supper, I would simply remind you, Christian, that that's impossible. That there is an eternal last supper awaiting us. An endless meal that never runs out. An endless cup that never runs dry. Now, a heretical application. A heretical application. At least I'm telling you it's heretical, right? This is what other pastors do not do. They pass it off as truth. I'm telling you, it's heretical. Uh, Kyle, I am expecting God to do miracles just like this. I want a falcon to fly over my head and drop a stake in my lap. The next flock of birds, Kyle, I see, I'm going to stand under them, open my mouth, and hope for a Krispy Kreme donut. I wouldn't do that. I would not do that. You may get something else in your mouth. These are one-time, non-duplicatable, non-repeatable miracles. These are one-time, non-duplicatable, non-repeatable miracles. They happened in a certain space and time in order for God to flex on these Baal worshipers. In the Old Testament... And the New Testament, miracles came in clusters. You don't need to look at this and expect it to happen in your life tomorrow. Miracles validated the message. The miracle served as confirmation someone is speaking God's word. Miracles came at crucial moments and in critical junctures in God's redemptive story. I don't think these events are supposed to be the normal part of Christian experience. They happen so infrequently in Scripture. Here are some of the clusters of miracles in the Bible. The Exodus. Elijah and Elisha. Jesus. And the Apostles. The first two to prove you will have no other gods before me. The, the, the second two to prove Jesus Christ as God in the flesh. The, the first two, God picking a fight with false deities. The second two, Jesus is the true deity. We don't have prophets like this today. No one coming and saying, 
I heard this message from God. Your cookie jar is never going to run out of chocolate chip cookies. There's a theology. There is this Mog theology. M-O-G. This man of God theology. It's prevalent in Pentecostal circles. Circles that are still open to the miraculous sign gifts. A little bit in your Acts 29 group. Uh, some of it was even in groups that were closed to the gifts, like your, your IFB circles. That the preacher is the man of God. Don't you touch the anointed, or you will get eaten by bears. They, they also have this in the secular realm as well. It's called the man of history view. Winston Churchill believed he was a man of history. He once insulted a man. The man insulted him back. Churchill was caught off guard and couldn't believe it. He said, I, I can't believe you said that. The man said, well, you insulted me. Churchill said, yes, but I'm Winston Churchill. And that thing, same goes over into the church. Yes, but I'm the man of God. The mock theology has that same mentality, and pastors preach this like they are Elijah. Faith Family Church, you have four pastors. You should honor your pastors, but do not view them like Old Testament prophets. There are no more prophets. The point of this text is not an equal with Elijah is here. The point of this text is that one greater than Elijah is here. Which leads us to our final application. A Christ application. A Christ application. In our narrative, someone raised to life a widow's dead son. That, that only happened one other time in scripture. A widow's son being raised to life. That exact scenario, only one other place, it was in Luke 7 when Jesus interrupted a funeral. No one interrupts a funeral like Jesus does. Interestingly enough, Jesus raised a widow's son right after he preached on Elijah raising a widow's son. Hebrews says that by faith women receive back their dead. This was two of those women. There are two widows, one in Zarephath and one in Nain. The similarities could not be more striking. Both wearing the widow mourning garb. Both were first encountered at the city gates. Both widows are stricken with grief at the loss of their only son. Both Elijah and Jesus perform an unclean act. Elijah lies on the dead body. Jesus touches the coffin. Both boys were cold to the touch. Both women see their dead son live again. Both texts have the exact same phrase, he gave him back to his mother. In both stories, people believe after the resurrection. However, there is one great difference. Jesus is not just a man of God. He's the God who became a man. A greater than Elijah is here. He is the Christ. He went to a desert and did not have ravens feed him. Yet in that baking sun, he never sinned. He also made a barrel never run out of resources. It was at a wedding in Cana. No wonder some thought he was Elijah. <laughs> However, Elijah's wilderness wandering was much different than Jesus' wilderness wandering. Elijah enters God's witness protection program. The snake never found him. Jesus didn't enter God's witness protection program. He entered God's salvation redemption program. The snake had access to him. Both Jesus and Elijah went into the snake's den. Elijah, the ravens found him. The serpent didn't. Jesus, the ravens never found him. The serpent did. The serpent met Christ in the wilderness and finally met Christ on the cross. God protected the prophet Elijah from the serpent. God gave the prophet Jesus over to the serpent. He hangs 
alone, abandoned on the cross. The, the serpent bruised his heel, but he crushed the serpent's head. Now, there are snakes all throughout God's redemptive story. Ahab and his wife Jezebel are just two of them. In nearly every story, you can find a snake at work to corrupt the worship of God. We find in Revelation that the ancient serpent, the father of, of all these snakes throughout the Bible, is thrown into hell. And perfectly pure worship follows for all eternity to the God who rules the reign. Our Father, you bring mountain men and widow women and put them together under the blood of your Son. You put them together in a church. Thank you for bringing this local church together. We often have unassured souls. Thank you for passages like this that bring assurance to our souls. You care for the widow. Psalm 68 says you are the protector of the widows. And you are the God of the nations. We worship you. Amen.